Practical wisdom from the first leader of the Christian Church in Jerusalem. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we study James and how to put our faith into action. James 5, uh, beginning at verse 7, we finished at the previous episode, we looked at James 5, verses 1 through 6, where we just looked at the problem with having too much wealth, hoarding your wealth, understanding that wealth does not stick around. You have to work really, really hard to maintain your wealth and how difficult that can be and just a lot of stuff associated with that. Today, we're going to move into a different topic as because we're closing down James. I'm thinking that by the end of the week, we'll be done with the book of James. We only have two sections left and today's Wednesday. And today, we're going to talk about the church. Because if you remember, James wrote this letter to Jews who were dispersed from Jerusalem. They were not living in Jerusalem. They were living around uh, Turkey, the Middle East, just in the outskirts of Jerusalem, wherever they were. And this was a letter from James to them. And if you'll remember, he starts out the letter saying, blessed are you who are persecuted. Uh, rejoice when you have persecutions in your life because persecutions build your faith, suffering, and all that sort of thing. Well, now we're coming to the end and he's circling back down again to the whole idea of suffering. And so let's just go ahead and read it and then we'll talk about it. So again, this is James chapter 5 beginning of verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. And have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. So a couple thoughts here. First of all, he's talking about being patient until the Lord's coming. We know a couple thousand years later that the Lord's coming did not happen in James' lifetime. As a matter of fact, it has not happened in any lifetime since then. So this patience that James is talking about is a patience that we too need to show. Patience until the Lord's coming. And Jesus did say he was coming again. It's very, very clear that the early church thought that this coming of Jesus would happen probably within their generation. Jesus didn't specify. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you when I come back. I will take you with me and that's where we'll be and we'll live together in this heavenly mansion. And so there was this anticipation in the early church that Jesus was, I mean, if he created the earth in six days, how long does it take him to make a heavenly mansion, right? But in God's own wisdom and grace and lifetime, he understands that he wants us to continue to grow, to continue to serve, to bring about his kingdom on the earth, and that hasn't happened yet. And so he is still allowing us to live and breathe 
and minister to the world around us. And at his time, in his doing, when he's ready, he will return. But it has not happened yet. I do remember my great-grandmother, who was a Pentecostal, believed that it would happen in her lifetime. And for sure, it would happen in my lifetime. And it has not happened yet in my lifetime. It certainly didn't happen in her lifetime or my grandmother's lifetime. And so we just wait patiently until the Lord's coming. As the farmer waits for his land to yield its valuable crop. If you've ever farmed, you know that you put the crop in and then you wait. The rains come, the storms come, the crop gets bigger, and then you yield the harvest. And a farmer knows that he simply has to be patient. You can't plant the seed, then the seeds sprout out of the ground, and the seed is an immature plant that's not to full height yet, and say, well, the plant's not at full height yet, so I'm going to just chop the whole thing down and start over again. No, a farmer needs to have patience. And that's, that's difficult to have patience, and yet that's what God calls us to do, is to be patient. And then don't grumble against one another. I am shocked. I am completely appalled that he had to write this in this letter. How could the early church possibly have been grumbling against each other? You would think that the church of all time would be immune from grumbling. Jesus is the personification of grace and love and joy. How could the church grumble? And yet, if we're to believe this letter from James, apparently somewhere along the line there may have been a little bit of grumbling against one another. And James says, don't grumble against one another. You'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. I think the world, the culture around us, somehow has this false belief that the church is perfect, that we shouldn't grumble against each other, that we should do all things right, that everybody in the church is a perfect saint. And when we just mess up one little bit, then they point to us and say, ha ha, see, you're not perfect. You say you're perfect, but you're not perfect. And shame on any church that says that they're perfect because we're not. No congregation is perfect and the church is not perfect. We fail in many ways. We are led by human beings who have succumbed to the sickness of original sin. We live in a fallen condition. We live in a fallen world. The church is not perfect. And there are some denominations that believe that they have a perfect handle on the truth, that they have a perfect handle on what God wants them to do. And so they believe, teach, and confess the things that they believe that God wants them to do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I do believe that it is wrong to say that any church is perfect. No church is perfect. No congregation is perfect. No, no preacher is perfect. No congregational member, except for mine, of course, is perfect. We, we live in that fallen world. I think of some of the churches that have made it onto the headlines of the news and how much they just present themselves as having all the answers, all the, which, which in a way presents strength and people are attracted to strength. They're attracted to people that say we have all the answers. They, they want to go and find a place that they can find all the life's deep and secret answers to the great mysteries of the human condition. And to some extent, a church can portray themselves as having a great deal of answers 
and having a good handle on those things. But any church that presents themselves as perfect is wrong. And I don't think any congregation should present themselves as perfect, period. And because we're not perfect, that means that we grumble against one another. Grumbling in a church, in a congregation, is part of the human condition. It goes all the way back to James and before James in the writings of Paul. The whole reason why Paul wrote all these letters to all these congregations was because there were problems and Paul had to minister to these congregations and talk about these problems and how to, how to solve these problems or to understand these problems. And also to point out that God's grace is bigger than all the problems of each congregation. God's grace overlooks, redeems, perfects the problems of congregations. So that brings a little bit of hope for us too, because even though we get it wrong, Jesus still loves us. The bride of Christ, which is the church, does not get put away. He does not, she does not get overthrown. Jesus works harder to love and to protect his bride at every age, including the age of James, which is a wonderful thing. And then he talks about how the prophets persevered. And then he goes to Job, which is an interesting one to go to. If you'll remember the story of Job really quickly, the devil was roaming around and said, hey, have you seen your servant Job? He looks like a guy with a deep faith. And God says, yes, Job is, is a really, really good guy. I like Job. He seems to be doing things well, and I like him. And Satan's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test him, see how deep his faith runs. And the Lord gave permission for that to happen. And Satan came in and destroyed Job. He cancel culture Job. He destroyed the family. Job was left with nothing. And all of Job's friends came to him and said, listen, you need to curse God, curse yourself, and get through this. You can't just say, God still loves me and blesses me. And yet Job remained faithful and said, no, I know I'm going through a lot right now, but I am going to remain faithful to God. Now that is a difficult lesson because when trials come in our life, it is hard to remain faithful to God. As a matter of fact, if you talk to any atheist in the world today and say, why is it that you have a hard time believing that there's a God? The number one thing, and maybe the only thing they'll come back with is there's too much suffering in the world. And if there was a loving God truly out there, there would not be suffering in the world, which there's no philosophy or system anywhere that says there can't be suffering. As a matter of fact, if we believe scripture, suffering is something the human condition goes through and grows with and gets a deeper understanding of God and their faith grows through suffering. So suffering has a purpose. It's not pleasant. We don't like it. The good news is that Jesus promises that he'll walk with us through the suffering and that our suffering will not separate us from him. So that's, that is the main promise from God. But if you've suffered in your life, it is, it is possible like many atheists believe that just there's too much suffering for me to wrap my head around the idea that there's a God. And so they look at creation and they see random chance. They see things that don't point to God. And yet if you talk to a Christian, someone with deep faith, they point to the beauty of creation. They say, how could this possibly have happened except by a loving, beautiful God that loves us and cares for us and every hair on our head is numbered and there is no thing that he doesn't know. 
and he is involved in every aspect of this world and loves us deeply and and if you can get to that point in your faith where you believe that you'll be like job even in the midst of suffering you can turn and say god i know that i'm suffering right now and i don't like it but i know that you're with me and i'm not going to let this suffering separate our relationship and I know that you're clinging on to me as tight as you can, and you will never separate this relationship. You'll never break apart this relationship. And when you get through the suffering, when the, when the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel comes and we get through and we're back in clear air, we can pause and look back and say, these are the lessons I learned and I can see how God was with me through all of these things. And not everybody can do that. And some of the pains and struggles in this world are real. Some people have lost loved ones. Some people have lost loved ones through uh, tragic things. There have been children uh, that have died. There have been um, people who are, who are just haven't really had the opportunity to live their full life on this earth that have have died there there have been earthquakes there have been tsunamis there have been hurricanes snake bites pandemics all of these things have happened in the human condition and they are at, the, at their root opportunities for us to learn something different and grow our faith in god and when we do the faith gets stronger the roots go deeper and our wisdom grows our empathy grows and we are able to be more useful in the kingdom because we've gone through the suffering. I do, I do have a bit of sadness for people that don't have suffering in their life. And as a parent, I, I've often wondered, did I raise my children with enough suffering? We had rules, we made them follow the rules, and when they didn't follow the rules, we made them suffer in those ways. So we definitely disciplined them. But by and large, our children, as they were growing up, we pretty much gave them a, a non-challenging middle-class existence that didn't have a whole lot of suffering. Although, I guess I could ask my children if they suffered <laughs> growing up in our household. They might give me a totally different answer to whether or not they suffered. I don't know. Or they might give me an answer as to whether or not we prepared them enough for the suffering that the real world offers once they get out of the home. And these are, these are questions that we just simply can't answer. And every parent has to go through this journey themselves. Some parents provide a lot of opportunities for suffering. Some parents provide hardly any opportunity for suffering. And no parent is perfect. Every parent is sinful. So at some level, every parent is going to raise their children in ways that are probably not healthy for the long-standing life of their children. And yet God provides grace to parents. God provides grace to children. God provides grace to this world, and for that, I'm very thankful. So when suffering occurs in your life, be patient. And count as blessed those who have persevered, like Job. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In the midst of suffering, that's what we find out. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And the more the suffering, the more he pours out, his compassion and mercy.
And if you really, really want to see the compassion and mercy of God, you, you will when the suffering, when the trials come. But when they do come, count it all as joy because the testing of your faith produces perseverance and perseverance lets your life complete its work, which is growing in your faith. So the early church struggled. We struggle. Our lives struggle. But God is more powerful than all the struggles in our life. And for that, we're thankful. And he goes on. He says, above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear, which is interesting, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. This seems so strange in a world where we live with contracts to make sure that every little I is dotted and T is crossed and we don't do anything unless we have a good contract. James says, just let your word be good enough for you. A yes or a no is all you need to be. And there are still people out there, believe it or not, and I know, I know some of them, where if they shake on it, if they give you a handshake and they say, okay, I'm going to do X if you do Y, that they will not go back on these handshake deals, X and Y. And we have lived like this in a country for a very, very long time. And the great thing about these face-to-face contracts, the thing I miss about them is that it humanizes the deal. When two people come together and, and say, my yes is my yes and my no is my no, and my, my reputation is at stake, your reputation is at stake, we're going to come together and we're going to work this out. There's a humanness that's brought around to it. Whereas in today's world of contracts and contract loopholes and language and things like that, we just simply don't humanize the people that we contract with. They, they become numbers. And when people become numbers, it's really, really, really difficult to to fulfill a contract or to see the humanness behind the contract. When I was an engineer, I'll tell you one little story and then, then we'll probably close. When I was an engineer, we were doing a lot of land surveying, what they call construction land surveying. And in construction land surveying, you get a set of plans and you go out and you mark where something is going to be built and then something's built. And the problem with construction land surveying is that if it goes south, if something wasn't built appropriately, sometimes they come back after the construction land surveyor. Sometimes they come out back after us as a company. And most times these things were not high-priced items. Like the biggest thing that would ever come back on somebody would be a caisson foundation for a building that was maybe staked in the wrong location. 90% of the times if it was put in the wrong location, the cap that goes on the caisson, if, as long as the force was still pretty much on the caisson, the structural engineer would say, yeah, you don't need to move it. But every once in a while, the structural engineer would do a calculation. He'd say, no, this is too far off. You need to rip out that foundation and put it in again. And ripping out a foundation and starting over again is expensive because you have to jackhammer it out and it's it's just not pleasant. Or maybe you pour another foundation around it. I mean, there's, there's just different ways to deal with that problem. Well, I'm really rambling here. There was a time when we surveyed something and the, the engineering firm that did the design actually messed up on the design. And the thing is, is that way down in the fine print, 
it said the surveyor will verify all locations in this in this design and if there's any errors they will make they will point it out to the company that did the design well you simply cannot go back and resurvey everything so you you point spot check different things to make sure that it matches and agrees and you understand it which we did but there was an error in the design and because of that clause they came after us the 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 city that we were doing the survey for came after us and not the design firm. Of course, they were probably today, they're the second or third largest engineering firm in the world. So they had lots of power and clout and we were just the small surveying firm which had no power or clout. And so we, we lost that battle and we ended up um, having to go through our errors and emissions insurance and they ripped out this huge section of road and rebuilt the whole thing, which was just amazing. And all of this is to say that we were not, we were just a number. We, there was no humanization behind any of this. And whenever there's humanization in the world of commerce, whenever there's dehumanization in the world of commerce, people become numbers and figures and facts and there's no real world interaction and communication between people. There's only raw facts and raw numbers and, and trying to make ourselves look good in the eyes of other people and all that sort of thing. I, that one, believe it or not, that one particular project sticks with me and it has ever since it happened. In the, that would have been, nine, it would have been 2001, I think, when that happened. Um, it still sticks with me because I, there, there was no humanization behind the contract. And if I look at James here, he the great thing about letting your yes and no be what they say is it humanizes the people behind these social contracts. And when you humanize it, there's an op, there's a there's a desire, perhaps a desire to find a better solution that works for everybody as opposed to the technical legal solution that only works for one side and doesn't work for the other side. And I think if you've lived in this world and you've done contracts, you have strived to, to humanize these things as much as possible because otherwise people and careers and lives and companies and things could be destroyed by it. And, and nobody wins when one side overwhelmingly destroys the other side. That's that's Augustine, right? The just war doctrine is that if one side has 99.9% .9 of the power, it's not a just war. And we do in the United States try to protect the people who are at the very, very low end from losing everything. And when it's true, I mean, in that particular instance, we were able to move on because we did have the insurance that covered up this, not covered up, but covered this whole thing. And eventually the whole thing was fought out in insurance companies. And that's probably where stuff like this should be fought anyway. But in James' time, they didn't have that. So in James' time, it was just let your yes your yet be yes and your no be no. And uh, otherwise, you will not live a happy, healthy life and you will be condemned. So... Um, I think we'll leave it at that. So let's close in prayer. 
Gracious God, in the midst of trials and tribulations, help fill me with your spirit so that I have patience. And let my yes be yes and my no be no. And let me not fall into double speak. Be with us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.